Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession this morning is taken from Proverbs 19, verse 1. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. In one of my favorite movies of all time, The Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye complains to God about being poor. He says, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. Today's proverb justifies Tevye's sentiment a little bit. It contrasts poverty and wealth, integrity and foolishness. The proverb teaches that a poor man with integrity does have more honor than a wealthy man without it. A poor man doesn't have to be ashamed of his position in the world. Integrity is a word that we don't come up against very often in our daily lives, but it is a quality that is pervasive in those who attain it. It is something you walk in. Better is the poor man who walks in his integrity. Here, integrity is contrasted with perverse lips, which points to the definition and correct understanding of this word. Integrity means honesty. A man with integrity has a dramatic and powerful commitment to the truth. Interestingly enough, though a poor man with integrity is better than a wealthy liar, poverty is not the result of integrity. Dave Ramsey, the nationally syndicated radio host and Christian financial guru, has a spot where he talks about the qualities of multimillionaires, the extremely rich. They said that, the, that integrity is the number one quality found in people who attain great wealth. Every single one of the multimillionaires that were, he was reviewing a book, every single one of those multimillionaires had that quality. They had integrity. In fact, they were fanatical about integrity. Now this doesn't mean that integrity guarantees wealth, but it is a prerequisite to attaining it. And this is because a man of integrity will not lie to you. He will not lie with his words, his actions, or his promises. If he says it, his word has value. If he shakes hands on it, it's a done deal. Those who do business with him know that they can trust him. On the other hand, a wealthy man, though he has money, is a fool if he has perverse lips. This is the man who swears up and down that he will deliver on his word and then is found wanting. This is the man who signs on the dotted line but has not counted the cost. He cheats on his taxes, he cuts corners, his path is shifty, his way unstable, and he is worse off than a poor man who keeps his word even if he's loaded. Psalm 15 sheds a little more light on this subject. 
Psalm 15 teaches that integrity has everything to do with right worship. In verse 1 of Psalm 15, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And here is the answer, the rest of the song. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. As you can see in our bulletin this morning, the text for today's sermon is from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is the story of the anonymous widow that cried unto Elisha, the prophet of God. And we ask ourselves, why is this widow crying out to a prophet? Well, the reason is that her two sons are being taken away by creditors to be made bondmen to pay a debt. Truly, her prospects are grim if these sons are taken away. But equally grim is the context within which she finds herself in the nation of Israel. The unity that was achieved in the land under King David, it is now a thing of the past. Idolatry, unfortunately, is now commonplace. Yahweh himself had blessed this nation. He had blessed them with freedom from slavery. He brought them out of Egypt. But now they are in a promised land and they have turned their backs on him. Israel was supposed to show her gratitude. She was supposed to keep covenant. She was supposed to be faithful and obedient. She was supposed to obey Yahweh, the Lord of life. And in doing so, she would be given life. But she has not done that. She has turned her back on her God. She has sinned. And now, death is everywhere in the land, affirming that the wages of sin is death. In the face of these circumstances, there is hope for Israel, as denoted in the story in the sign of the anonymous widow. The miraculous filling of vessels with oil in this story they meet the immediate need of this widow who is in want. And it is a sign to Israel that they need to repent of their sins and cling to the Lord in obedience to his word. They need to trust in Yahweh alone. Why? Because the just shall live by faith. They need to have the faith of the widow. And so this morning our aim is this. We want to model our faith after hers. Our text. Hear the word of our Lord. 2 Kings, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee, and upon thy sons, 
and shalt pour out into all of those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him, and shut the door upon her, and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her sons, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Please pray with me as we thank our Lord for his word. Our Father in heaven, open our ears, open our eyes. Teach us this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, increase our faith in Christ, our Lord, through the conviction based on hearing your voice today. Bless the preaching of the word as we consider the anonymous widow who cried unto Elisha the prophet. Glory to God, in the name of our Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. The book of 1 and 2 Kings is a prophetic and political summary of Israel's transition from life to death. That is, from godliness to wickedness, from freedom to slavery. It is the transition from freedom to the exile in Babylon. This story reminds us that man is always reduced by sin to a state of ruin. And because of sin, Israel is like a city without walls. She is not self-controlled, and she opens herself. She is unprotected to the nations around her. First and Second Kings builds upon the story in First and Second Samuel. It tells us about it, 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 it tells us how David, under his rule, there was unity in the land. But with the death of David, and then shortly thereafter, division comes. Solomon's son Rehoboam, he rules wickedly and foolishly. He creates division in the land, and this happens in First Kings chapter 12. This nation is split into two kingdoms: the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is a permanent downward spiral until the end of 2 Kings. And this downward spiral is characterized by the boring, repetitious sinfulness of idolatry. This story echoes Genesis in a sense. We see that Adam was given an original glory, and then he fell, and he is cast out of the garden. And Israel has this glory, this original glory, when the king is given to him, a holy, a, a, a holy righteous king, King David. But then we see that the kings on the throne, they too fall, and the nation is cast out of the land. They will be cast out of the garden of the promised land. The story of First and Second Kings in isolation almost reads like a Western tragedy. But we need to read carefully. As we read this book, we need to be careful because we may think the most optimistic parts of the story, that is, the parts of the story where people are faithful to God, are in the horizon behind you as you move through the text. However, we know just like the hope found in Genesis 3.15, where God promises the woman in the midst, in the midst of, of the man and woman's sin that a son will come and that he will strike the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent. So too, in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, hope is given and presented to Israel. And the hope is this. It is found in the word that comes from the mouths of the prophets. The Lord sends them holy men like Elijah and Elisha. And these men... They tell the divided nation to place their confidence in God alone. They must repent and turn and obey God. Israel must place her trust in God alone. Why in God alone? 
In Exodus 34, 6-7, we know why. You must place your trust in the Lord, because it is the Lord alone who is merciful. It is the Lord alone who is gracious and long-suffering. It is the Lord alone who is abundant in goodness and truth. Yes, it is true that judgment is coming, and because of this, justice demands that God will by no means clear the guilty. But the Lord is merciful, and this gives us hope that he will provide satisfaction. Israel has sinned, as one commentator mentions for the book of of, of Kings. Uh, Israel has sinned, therefore she is as good as dead. The prophet's message to Israel is this, cling to the God who can raise the dead. As we consider the the book of 1 Kings, we we should pause and reflect on this as Protestants because Israel has sinned primarily through tolerating idolatry. And this has led to her openly, openly and willingly participating in idolatry. It's not as though it's just on the side and she's ignoring it, or she isn't, um, she isn't uh, speaking out against it. She's participating in idolatry. And for a moment, we see, we see how radical the change is in Israel when we consider just the role the prophet plays in this nation. In Samuel, we see that the prophet Samuel was at the head of the theocracy in Israel. And theocracy, as my pastor, Pastor Sean would say, is just a, it's a 50 cent fancy word for saying a nation is ruled by God. And so Samuel's the head of the theocracy in Israel. And as the judge and prophet in Israel, he, 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 conduct, he's part, he, he participates in the political administration of that country. And then we fast forward to Elisha and Elijah, and where do we find them? They aren't in the courts of the kings, you know, actively participating there with the, with the politics of this land. They're on the margins, you know, at times maybe even running for their lives, you know, hiding out. And so we see just how, how different different the land is. Idolatry has come in, and it has come in to the point where those who declare, you know, those who are the heralds of the Lord are hated in the land. And so Israel, she has been hoodwinked with idolatry. She has been hoodwinked by the prophets of Baal. But First and Second Kings is a wonderful story because it's pro- the pro- Protest- Protestants, it serves as a warning to us that this is what happens when the church tolerates idolatry. It will always lead to division. It will always lead to death. Idolatry tolerated in any form will always lead to death. Spiritual death, physical death, you name it, all inclusive. And so we should, we should identify with our positive forefathers from 500 years ago who maintained the necessity of always reforming the church. And they're prim- they're, you know, they were primarily concerned with reforming the church and her worship of the Lord. And this is why worship is so crucial, so crucial with, um, with, with, with a, a Protestant biblical vision for the world. You know, that um, as we go out into the, into the, the cultural wars, the, you know, the warfare that takes place, it flows from worship. It flows from here. And so we must maintain that all sins, the sins of idolatry cast the longest, longest shadows. Therefore, we must always oppose idolatry. This is why Protestants continue to protest. Let us consider now the verses specifically. In verse 1, this anonymous widow is crying unto Elisha. This anonymous widow, she's somewhat a casualty of war, so to speak. She's a casualty of spiritual warfare, of idolatry. And she comes to Elisha. She has lost her, and her husband dying. She has lost her protector. She has lost social identity in a certain sense in the community and status. And now she is faced with the real threat of losing her two sons to creditors. We ask ourselves, 
This woman has come crying to the prophet, but is she justified in doing so? Aren't we required to pay our debts? Isn't this one of the marks of being faithful to law, to Torah, to being a Christian, being faithful to Christ, is that we are honest, that we do pay our debts? And we do know that in the law, as we heard this morning from Leviticus 25, that temporary servitude is allowed as payment for debt. However, we know that she is justified. Why? Because the analogy of faith maintains that we must take all of the counsel of Scripture to interpret all of Scripture. And so this widow is justified in coming to the prophet in this circumstance because what is happening right now is not a just avenue for payment by her creditors. Exodus 22, 22, Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19, we know that God protects for and cares for widows and orphans and strangers in the land. But the men in these stories, these creditors, they aren't doing that. And this is why the widow is coming to Elisha. The widow comes to Elisha and she appeals to Elisha for counsel. She's appealing to God for justice in this situation. This makes us think of the Beatitudes where Christ tells us the merciful will be shown mercy. Well, Yahweh, he wants us to be like him. He wants this nation to be like him. He wants them to be merciful. If these creditors were merciful, they would know God's law. And they would know that even though there is a true debt that needs to be paid, they have the ability to forgive it. They have the ability to be like God and not take away this woman's two sons, her only hope. Let's contrast this with Solomon's reign. Under Solomon's reign, women appealed to the king in the land for justice. We see this in 1 Kings 3. But not now, not while wicked men sit on the throne. When wicked men sit on the throne, justice is absent from the land because justice is absent from those kings' hearts. The widow knows she will not receive justice at the courts of idolatry, so she appeals to Elisha. She appeals to God. Elisha's response, he says, What shall I do for thee? What do you have in your house? He's inquiring, Well, perhaps you may have something. What can we do to sell to help pay off this debt? But she doesn't have anything. Truly, truly she is poor. For all she has is a pot of oil. A pot of oil. Oil was very valuable, but the oil in that one pot was obviously not enough to pay the debt that she had. It is kind of an irony that this, an irony that this widow only has one pot of oil, because we see a nation that models itself after God will be merciful and gracious to the poor. And so this poor widow has one pot of oil. Well, this word oil can also mean fat or ointment. And so she only has one pot of fat. You know, one pot, of, one pot of bounty, so to speak. But she's in a land where the Lord commands them to be merciful and gracious to the poor. But she only has one little pot of oil. And so this confirms for us that you know, she's in dire straits, but she's also in a situation where she's surrounded by wickedness. People who turn their backs to people in need. And then we see that you know, kings on the thrones and even, you know, um, Private religious leaders who are participating in idolatry are winking at these creditors who are going out and demanding this payment. We see how hard this how how hard this must be for her. But she receives the command from the pro- the prophet. The prophet tells her, "Go, gather your neighbor's pots." And he says, "Not a few. 
But she's supposed to go out and gather a lot of pots. And he tells her that then once she gathers them, to go behind a closed door in her home with her sons and begin to pour. And the widow does exactly that. The widow, she appears foolish to her neighbors and she runs out and gathers pots. And I'm sure people might look sideways at her. Why are you collecting empty pots? What are you going to do with my empty pot, my empty vessel? She obeys the prophet's command to the letter. And we see, like the man that descended to Israel and fed Israel in the darkness of night, so too in the wilderness of her circumstances, this widow behind the night of her closed door, to her God sends oil. She pours and pours until she asks her son, bring me another pot. And there is none. And the oil stays. The widow, she does not presume upon the word of the prophet. So she returns to him. It would have been obvious to us, I'm supposed to sell this oil. I'm supposed to sell it and go pay my debt. But the prophet didn't tell her to do that. He just told her to pour out oil. So she returns. She does not presume upon his word. She says, I have oil. What am I going to do with all this oil? And Elisha tells her, simply, go sell the oil and pay the debt. The Lord has provided deliverance for this woman. As we consider this widow's faith, as we consider that she has trust and reliance, obedience and loyalty to the Word of God, let's try to apply it to our lives. We see that this widow's faith, what was the character of this faith? In her time of need, she went and appealed to God, the prophet of God, and so should we. We should be like that. We see that we consider the response. The widow obeyed, and it required true faith. She believed that God has infinite resources to give those who obey him. There's plenitude in the midst of death and despair in the land. It would take real faith to go pull yourself up in your house with a bunch of empty vessels and start pouring. That takes real faith. It truly, this also truly demonstrates for us that the Lord in his omnipotence, he is not tethered or hindered or hamstrung in any sense to bless his church, to bless those who place their trust in him. Her faith rested in God himself. It didn't rest in the oil, it didn't rest in the empty vessels, it didn't rest in the prophet, it rested in God himself. Only faith in God will lead a lady to go into a room and start to pour out vessels into empty vessels and believe that oil is going to show up. Only faith in the God who speaks and creates a world only God could have increased this oil. And so we ask ourselves, do we have faith? Do we trust in the Lord like this widow? And so for some of us, let's get granular and consider like specific examples. Perhaps you are a wife at home. Perhaps you are a wife who submitted herself to God's call to stay at home and to care and to educate your children. You probably don't have professional credentials to be an educator. And you know that now you live in a culture that, that doesn't encourage this type of sacrificial living. However, in the midst of our culture of death, which is what we see ourselves in with abortion, the public education at times, we see that children are being sacrificed to the gods of secular humanism, pragmatism, and corporate life, things like that. But you must place your faith in an omnipotent God who promises abundance and plenty. You worry. You worry constantly. Will my child be intelligent? Will they be smart? Will they receive the proper education to thrive in this cutthroat and competitive world? 
Am I shortchanging them? You worry that you might be shortchanging them. But you must have faith that the Lord who promises plenty in the midst of scarce resources will bless you. He will strengthen and give you courage and determination. He will empower you through the Holy Spirit to do this hard task. And your child, their heart, their mind, their soul, the training you hope they have, the anticipation you have that they might love knowledge and love the Lord, you must have faith as you raise this child. You must have faith in your abilities that the Lord will strengthen you. You must have faith that the Lord will too care for this child. I know that sometimes you feel like your talents are an empty house with only a single vessel of oil. But your faith and your love, your trust in Yahweh, your appealing to God in these matters, that is all you need. With the face of the mustard seed, we can move mountains. We see the faith we can, we can raise children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. And we can equip them to, to, to thrive in the world. Other people, you might find yourselves, you might be a young adult, looking down the barrel of the future, trying to discern a vocation and a calling, your place in the world. I know from experience at that age you have many doubts, many fears, many uncertainties. But do you have faith? Are you seeking God? Are you seeking God's care? His word? Are you trusting God? I implore you to do so. Don't try to get your life all figured out. Just trust God. Place your faith in God. Children and parents, children, do you obey your parents? Do you have faith in your parents that they will care for you? I would hope so. Parents, obey God. Are you obeying His instructions? Is it evident that you have faith in the word of the Lord to your children? Are you modeling for your children what faith is? And Christians, all of us need to do this in relation to our pastors. When they provide instruction and counsel, we need to place faith in them. This is not an unbridled faith. It must be a faith that is tempered by the word. But the word also demands we must submit ourselves to godly elders. And so to do that takes faith. You have to trust someone. You have to rely upon them. So I want us to look foolish like the widow. I want us to look foolish like the widow because the gospel of Christ is true. Placing your, placing your trust in Christ. We, all of us, are like the widow. All of us are hopelessly in debt. All of us have nothing wherewith to discharge our disabilities. And what is our debt? It is sin. Our debt is sin. This means we must look foolish like the widow who had the one vessel of oil, who gathers her neighbor's empty vessels, goes behind a closed door, and is obedient and starts to pour. We too must be obedient to God. It takes faith to obey that God... It, it takes faith to believe that sin will be fixed by God, right? We have to place our faith in God. Why? Because only God can fix. Only God can fix sin. Only God can satisfy the justice demanded when sin occurs. And we know that God has done that through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And we know that Christ, he went to the cross. And we know that what he achieved there, he applies to us. And because of that, we can have faith. And we have hope. We must also consider oil. All this oil in these pots. 
It is a future sign. It gives us hope, just like Christ's cross. In this oil, there is a promise. It is an image. Oil is used for many things, food, medicine, religious use. But the predominant use in Scripture was in relation to religious use. Oil was used to anoint and set things apart as holy. We see that the priests and the furniture in the temple, the tabernacle, these things were set apart to be holy with oil. And so at the end of the story, as one commentator, one commentator compellingly you know, shows us, there's all this oil and we ask ourselves in a kind of awe and wonder, why is there so much, in, so much oil in Israel if Israel is so evil? You know, this is odd. This miraculous manifestation of oil, it represents God's glory. And it points us to a future work. It points us to something the Lord is going to accomplish. Look at all the oil in the land. Yes, we know the whole story. We've read it. We know that Israel goes to Babylon because of her sin. We know that she is judged. But what else do we know? We know that she returns from Babylon. And we know that she is truly free to the work of Christ. To the Messiah, the Anointed One. All this oil points us to God's mercy and goodness. That oil will be used. The Lord, he intends to sanctify people, to pour out that oil on people. And so, let us learn from the will. I urge you, in your time of want and need, appeal to God and God alone. In the face of injustice, appeal to God and trust God. All of us are this widow. All of us, because of sin, we have lost protection. We have lost social identity. We have lost status. All of us are dead in sin. But, placing your trust in the Lord, like the widow, you hear his commands, you have faith, you trust and obey. The widow's faith triumphed over all difficulties, and so will yours. Therefore, be loyal to God, exercise faith by his grace. And this is what faith is. It is grace to you. It is not something you summon up from within yourself. It is not a matter of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is resting in God, resting in his work. Receiving his good gifts. Please pray with
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.